Hey, this is Kelly Whiffen. Thanks for joining us today for the Encounter Church podcast. We all want to live lives of better decisions and fewer regrets. No matter where you are in your spiritual journey, we believe the next 30 minutes can be one of the most helpful and hopeful parts of your week. At the end of the podcast, stay tuned for a couple messages. Thanks again for joining us today. Good morning. Welcome to Encounter Church. I don't know about you, but I, I, I kind of clapped when I saw the Tom Brady line. Um, just, I was like, man, I hope people just feel free to like, say yes or something, because it's just so true. Um, completely side note, I, when I was walking through the lobby, I think somebody should make a cologne that smells like bacon. Um, <laughs> now, I get there's some technical difficulties, like the pack of coyotes following you around, and small children biting your leg, and, you know, middle-aged men chewing on you. But I just think that there is something there, because when you walk through that lobby and the smell of bacon fills your nose, it's just magical. So that's a freebie for you if you're a young entrepreneur wondering what to do with your life. There you go. Be free. You don't even have to put me on the royalties or the patent, although we will take it, all right? So um, with that said, I'm so glad you're here today. We're kicking off a new series um, called The Beginner's Guide to the Future. Um, I love reading uh, just kind of futuristic novels and these, this idea of what could the future look like. And I imagine for my daughter um, and her kids, like, are they going to have flying cars? Because I've waited my entire life for that. I don't know if any of you grew up with the Jetsons, but the Jetsons kind of way over-promised and under-delivered the future. Um, and so I just kind of wonder, you know, for my daughter, and I um, came across an interesting a piece of artwork uh, from the 1900s, um, 1901 and 1910. It was called France in the Year 2000. It was um, done around uh, this kind of big event in France. And they called together a bunch of French artists um, beginning in 1889 and said, we want to kind of for this huge world fair, we want to put together what we believe the future will look like in the year 2000. And um, it's a really fascinating uh, picture. This thing swept across France. It was on cigar and cigarette boxes, became postcards um, once it hit public domain. And, and so I just want to give you a glimpse of what people in 1889 thought 2000 would look like. One, this is a picture of school. They saw school as a teacher just feeding in books into a little machine and churning out. And all the students had to do was sit there wearing a hat and just knowledge would seep and creep in. And oh, wow, I wish that had existed because that would have changed schooling for me. Um, there also seemed to be this fascination around ocean life. They envisioned that we would use seahorses to get around in the uh, ocean, um, which is really amazing because I, I guess they thought not only would we use seahorses, but we'd figure out how to grow them really large because seahorses are definitely not that size. And the, the fascination with the ocean life spilled in even to like sports where they had this picture of like racing in the Pacific on like, I guess, barracudas. And like notice all the spectators gathered in to watch the barracuda racing. Like these are legitimate pictures from a World Fair expose around life in the year 2000. And what these pictures do is show you that we are really bad at predicting the future, right? I mean, the 1900s were not known for any of those things. What they were known for were the worst wars in human history. Um, no one, none of the French artists predicted space travel. They, they figured we would be riding seahorses, but they never imagined we would make it into outer space. And the point of this series is that 
we fall into a trap when we try to predict the future. But there is another type of future that I think is actually even more important, and it's not the future, it's your future. And this is what this series is about. This isn't going to help you with your stock market predictions, but this will perhaps raise your stock at home and change the way people see you. In fact, this idea of the future was a tension point in a letter written almost 2,000 years ago. There was a small group of people who were kind of wrapped up in a debate about the future. It's around 45 AD. There are a group of people, and their lives have been turned upside down because about 15 years prior to that moment, um, as my mentor likes to say, nobody expected to find nobody that day in the tomb. And yet somehow outside of Jerusalem, a group of people show up at a tomb of a revolutionary rabbi who had predicted that he would come back from the dead. And when they arrived at the tomb, there was nobody. And because nobody had predicted nobody, it kind of upended the whole climate and culture of Jerusalem at the time. And the, the followers of this radical rabbi, rabbi named Jesus started remembering his words. Like he said that he was going to come back to life at three days. And, and so these people, while they were ancient people, understood, I think, something that we all modern people can appreciate, that if someone predicts their own death and resurrection and comes back from the dead, we should probably go with that guy. I'm just saying that guy probably has some things figured out that some other guys do not. And this is what happens. They, people start to rally behind this resurrected rabbi named Jesus who had said, I am God. I've come to demonstrate my love for you. And this group of people coming primarily out of the, the Jewish faith at the time start to rally around and it becomes what we call the church today. And this thing spreads through the Roman Empire. And about 15 years later, there's this extreme debate about what is this thing called the church? What is it going to look like for the future? And what does all this mean for our, our past? And how is this going to relate? And they get into to a, a ton of theological debate around it in 45 AD. And Paul writes a letter. Paul, this man who had once been known for persecuting these people who believed that a rabbi was God who came back from the dead, is now one of those people who believes it. And his life's been changed. And one of the earliest letters that we have, one of the earliest letters that he writes is a letter to a group of people in a region called Galatia. And we call that today the book or the letter to the Galatians. And, and while he's unpacking a lot of debate theologically around the future, he does this pivot towards the end of the letter that I think is particularly helpful for us today as we look at our future, he presses into the idea of how to predict your future. And he lays out a very simple group of sentences that we're going to spend the next 25 minutes walking through because it's in these few sentences around and challenging these people to focus on their future, not just the future of the church, that we find an avenue and, an, and a way for us to start to predict and progress into our future too. Uh, if you have the app Jason referenced earlier, you'll find that we've already preloaded this in the message notes. Um, if not, uh, while even downloading, you'll see it on the side screens behind me. But the last portion of the letter of the book of Galatians, Paul is starting to unpack this. And he begins in chapter 6 of verse 7 with these words. He says, do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reap what he sows. Whoever sows to please their flesh from the 
flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the spirit from the spirit will reap eternal life. So he, he begins to unfold this after a lot of previous discussion around the future of the church. Now he's beginning to talk about their future as Christians. And he lays out a very simple principle, a principle that perhaps you've heard before, uh, the principle of you reap what you sow. It's a, an agrarian thing. It's, a, it's pulled out of what have been a very common um, knowledge base for the people, this metaphor around planting, that Paul uses what's common knowledge for them to couch this principle so that they will understand exactly what's going on. And this is a critical principle. It's, its beauty is in its simplicity. The challenge with, when something is really simple is that we can skip over it and we think it's, oh, it's not that important. And yet this principle, you reap what you sow, has shaped every one of our lives in this room. Regardless if you believe it, regardless if you knew it, it has been the invisible shaping force in your life and in the life of those people that you love and in the life of those people that you hate. Every single one of us are where we are in life today because this thing has been working underneath the surface. And what we can fail to appreciate is how truly helpful and radical this simple principle is. It's written to a group of people in the ancient world. And you have to realize in the ancient world, which is still very similar to the modern world, most people believed they didn't have full control of their life. Especially in the ancient world, they live with this constant fear of offending some god, maybe Zeus or Jupiter or Saturn or some, some god they don't even know the name of. They were constantly in fear that something was going to happen to them because they were primarily victims of cosmic actors. Plagues, fires, all these things would break out and they didn't understand any of it. And it led to a very helpless victim mindset. This idea that what psychologists today would call an external locus of control, that I don't have control of my life, control over my life exists by those outside of me. And for Paul to lay out this, what he does is he points to what psychologists now call today the internal locus of control. He's saying, no, you actually are in control of your life. The external factors around your life don't have to dictate the terms of your life, which is a really radical idea in the first century when Paul writes this. But it's also something that, quite honestly, some of us need to hear Maybe you were like me and you kind of grew up in a backdrop and you've watched family situations and you look at where you've come from and you have a hard time imagining that you could ever progress anywhere in life because of where, what you came out of. And you feel like you're a victim to circumstances and situations and that things happen to you, you don't really happen to it. And we've fallen into the trap of kind of shifting into that external locus of control. And one of the Paul's really helpful and encouraging pieces of advice in this passage is he's like, no, look, you have been given control of your life. I think this was something that my mom did for me that was incredibly help, helpful. I was the first one in my family to graduate high school. Um, my mom and the backdrop of our family, my mom's an incredible woman. Um, she's watching right now, no doubt. I love you, mom. Um, and, and so, but our, our extended family was crazy. There were more people, you had a better chance statistically in my family of being in prison than you did in the 12th grade, right? Most of the family members in my life ended up in jail. They didn't end up walking across the stage to graduate. And my mom, um, 
I think got this early on, and I don't know where she got it from, because everybody else in my family were locked into the external locus of control. They always had a reason for why things didn't work out. It was always someone else's fault. It was always someone else's issue. They drank, or they did drugs, or they did this, or they did that because of someone else. They always could point a finger. And my mom said, look, son, you can't control where you came from, but you have a choice about where you will go. The only thing that you have, son, is choice. That's the only thing that you will ever be offered in this life. I didn't grow up in a religious home, but like my mom understood deeply that there was a power of choice and that could change my life. And that set the stage. Um, just two weeks ago, I was down for my 18-year-old brother's graduation of high school. And to sit there and watch my mom and to realize, man, all three of her sons graduated high school. No one in our family beyond my mom's family has done that, even to this day. And yet all three of her sons have walked across the stage. And it's because there's something powerful about realizing you have control. And Paul gives that to them when he says you reap what you sow. It's in your hand. He makes the point, how does he anchor this? He begins with saying, do not be deceived. God will not be mocked. He's trying to paint this helpful picture that while you have control, the reason you have control, the reason this principle works, the reason it's so effective is because it's rooted in something bigger than you. It's rooted in the very character of God. It's, It's a principle. It's a law. And principles and laws can't be escaped. You can turn your nose up to gravity by thinking if you jump off a cliff, you fall up. But whenever you turn your nose up to gravity, you always end up nose down on the ground, right? Gravity's not mad at you. It just turns out bad for you every single time. Gravity is not a 99.9% thing. Gravity is not a 95% thing. Gravity is an every time thing, 100% of the time. Why? Because it's a fundamental law and principle of the universe, and Paul's trying to, to, to explain to a group of people, because quite honestly, we fall in this trap, where they believe they're the exemption to this principle. They're the exception to this rule. And his warning is, if you don't pay attention to what I'm saying, you will become an example of this rule. You will fall into its power, because this is not something you can exempt yourself out of. What you sow is what you reap, and it's rooted in the very consistency character, nature of God, the same God who created the universe where gravity exists has spiritual principles that apply to our lives too. And it's in this realm of choices that Paul's camping in. And then he moves on. He's wanting them to understand it's not just that it's rooted in the character of God, because that's a really helpful component of this principle. He also makes the point around this um, agrarian thing using seed, right? And so it's one of those things, again, that we can take for granted, but He's making the point that the content of the seed, right? So here's a seed in my hand. The content of the seed is going to be consistently found in the harvest. That sounds really simple. But imagine a world where that was not true. Imagine a world where this is an apple seed. Imagine a world when you planted an apple seed, you didn't get an apple. You got what's called a mantrail tree that looks like an apple. But the mantrail tree um, is, according to Guinness Book of Records, Guinness Book of World Records, is the most deadliest tree on planet Earth. It's a tree that you find in Florida, parts of the Caribbean. Um, its Latin name is Hippomane Manciella, 
which means little apple that makes horses mad in the Latin. That's actually its scientific name. Now, it looks a lot like this. In fact, it tastes a lot like this. It's super sweet. But the problem with this tree is the moment you bite into that piece of fruit, your lips, your tongue, and your throat begin to just burn. Uh, A couple of bites in, and you're potentially dead. Now, it's not just, remember, it's not the most poisonous fruit. It's the most dangerous tree. Because this tree, everything about this tree is evil. The tree, the sap, the leaves, the bark, the sap of this tree is so caustic, it's so acidic, that if you happen to somehow park your car underneath it, and it sap dripped onto your car, it would strip your paint off your car. If you happen to brush up against this tree or a leaf was to fall and brush up against your face, whatever it touched, it would burn and blister. If rain happened to be falling and raindrops bounced off this tree before it hit your head, you would, again, feel an amazing amount of burning and blistering. If this tree caught on fire and you happened to be in the proximity and the smoke shifted because of the wind and it blew in your eyes, you would go blind. Like, this tree doesn't play. It's a terrifying tree. And if you ever encounter one in the Caribbean or in certain swampy regions of Florida, what you'll notice is a ton of signs all around it that says, do not touch this tree. Your life is in danger. And yet we take for granted that what we plant in the ground consistently comes up as the same thing. We don't live in a world where you drop this seed and you get that. And this has been actually an essential thing for our species to thrive, right? There's a predictability to life. And Paul's trying to make the point that what you have inside the seed is what you get when the seed comes up out of the ground. That what you plant, you will grow. And this isn't just a helpful piece of knowledge around seeds. This applies to our choice. If you make a bad choice, as he's about to unpack for us, you get bad consequences. If you make good choices, you get good consequences. This is consistent. It doesn't change. But there's an even more powerful part of this principle that what you sow, you get more in what you grow. So this seed taken from an apple will not produce one apple. An apple seed has the potential to produce 16,000 pounds of apple over the course of its life. It will produce enough of these to fill an entire 18-wheeler tractor-trailer trailer it will produce about if you took all those apples you could squeeze out 2400 gallons of apple juice all of that sitting in the power of this one seed the reality is that in our choices we tend to get more than what we just sow. a lot more grows in our life than the small choice that we sow. and i think it's one of those terrifying things that even Before we step into some of those choices we're unsure of, it's worth asking the question, so if I reap what I sow, what will this choice grow? That's just a helpful thing to memorize. Because for some of us, we've gotten so blind to this principle that we walk through our lives and we just drop seeds every single day with no thought about what those seeds will become. No thought about what those seeds will turn into. And and the way that we treat our kids and the way that we treat our coworkers, we just drop seeds. And the way that we treat our spouse, we just drop seeds without any regard for what will grow based on what we just sowed. And this is Paul's kind of emphasis, right? He 
in verse 8, he makes the point to say that for those who sow to the flesh, they reap destruction, and those who sow to the spirit will reap eternal life. Paul is using um, some some little different, um, he's using a very first century um, theological framework to describe consequences. He's essentially taking consequences and he's grouping them into two major choices. He's saying there are the flesh, which is um, synonymous with uh, bad decisions, decisions that go counter to God's design for our life. And then he says there are the spirit decisions, which are the, the decisions that are in line with God's will for your life. He's essentially saying, let's say you own a Chevrolet, right? You don't open up your Chevrolet glove compartment and find an owner's manual from Ford, right? Chevrolet made it. They produced the owner's manual. And, and Paul's saying, look, God made you. He has desires, purposes, plans, and, and a will for your life. Like he thought you up. You were his idea. That, well, on Father's Day, we celebrate those people who were instrumental in bringing us into the world. They were just facilitating what God had originated. You were his idea. He planned you. And he created you. And so Paul's breaking in the flesh and spirit is essentially saying those choices that go in line with that owner's manual or the choices that go against what he intended for you. And he says for flesh, those that go against, he uses this interesting word, right? He says this leads to death or decay. It gets translated in different ways because the word he uses, then the, this specific version, the NIV, uses destruction. But the word is, is far more morbid than that. It's actually a word that points to decomposition of a dead body. He said that these choices in, that are sown in the flesh, they actually they bring death, which can sound, quite honestly, a little dramatic. But when you think about it, how many of our relationships have been killed through the small seeds of what we've said? How many relationships in this room or online don't exist anymore because of those small seeds of what was said regularly. See, the reality is that when things are reaped in this specific path called the flesh, it does bring death. Words can kill a relationship. It's why, as Christians, you periodically will say, well, what's the deal with, like, pornography, for example? Let's just take one that's way out there. Pornography is in this flesh realm because it kills intimacy. I've never sat with a couple who says, oh, you know, the best thing that ever brought us together was pornography. It just took our marriage to the next level. Man, it was so strong. No, it kills intimacy. That's why it's so destructive and deadly is because it begins to decay. Debt kills freedom. That's why it's so destructive. That's, it limits us from the freedom that God desired for us. Lies, the reason lies are so devastating is because it kills trust. I mean, growing up, probably with your kids today or in relationships with some other coworkers or your significant other, when someone consistently lies to you, you it, it, it kills your trust that you have in them. That our choices in this reign, this vein, does bring death. And Paul's trying to make the point, like, look, those small little flirtatious moments at work or gym, in your gym, they, they're, they're killing the relationship at home. Because when you plant a seed, what you sow, you always get more than what you grow. And it's death when it grows. And this is why it's so important. He's like, there's this compounding interest 
that takes part in our choices. And then he flips and he says, but there's spirit. And he says, he uses this word eternal life, which is I know not a, a phrase that many of us would use. And for Paul, when he uses the word eternal life, he's kind of taken his cue from Jesus, how Jesus would talk about eternal life. Eternal life is not just this thing about, well, when I die, there's like, there's this like next thing. That's not just, that's not eternal life. It's part of eternal life. Jesus and Paul both, when they spoke about eternal life, they meant what life the, the idea of what God intended for your life in this life and the next. It was this idea of God present in your life today, not just that day in the future. That every day you could experience that life and that fullness that, that Paul later writes about being marked with joy, peace, love, kindness, gentleness, self-control. All these amazing things that I'm pretty sure all of us would swipe right and say, yes, I want more of that in my life. Man, I'd love to have more joy. I'd love to have more peace. And this is this notion of eternal life. All of this is wrapped up because Jesus made central to his teaching. I am life. And when you follow me, life comes in and follows you. And so Paul's trying to point to the fact that the same dynamic over here that brings death can also over here, done the right way, bring life. One of the... um, I think I've shared this before, but I kind of, I think it's hilarious. One of the, when Jenny and I, after we got married, we'd move locations. And so Jenny was finishing out her job teaching and I was living um, in this town about two hours away. And so I lived with Jenny's grandmother and um, I like to joke, I've only lived with one other woman besides my wife and it was her grandma, right? Um, and so Granny was around 80 years old. She'd been recently widowed. And so Granny and I would eat dinner together almost every night. Um, Granny thought I was husky, and so she refused to give me meat. So oftentimes these meals were like four vegetables because she believed meat made you fat. Um, and she would tell me while we sat across the table talking about it. Um, and the, the vegetables were usually like a week old, but I just assumed, you know what, it's okay. She's probably going to die soon, and hopefully I don't die in the process eating really old food. But in the midst of our conversation, we would have, I would ask her questions. And what I found, like, Jenny's grandmother was an extraordinary woman. Um, she had an amazing um, relationship with her husband. They'd been married for, a, well, they, were the, they were the first couple I met that had been long, married the longest my entire life. I had never known a couple had been married as long as them. And I would watch them when I was dating Jenny. And we'd go out to these family events and they would still hold hands. Or they were, you could still, like, you'd see the tenderness and the compassion. And I was fascinated by it. And so when I would sit there across the table, I would just ask questions like, tell me about your marriage. Tell me, tell me about this trip because she'd have pictures. Tell me about this time. And what I heard consistently in Granny's story and what I've seen in other people's story was it was this principle at play that the small choices of life, the small choice of what I'm going to say back to my spouse, the small choice of what I'm going to do that shows kindness and compassion, of not reacting and overreacting and lashing out, but of having dialogue when there's conflict, like all these small choices to continue to invest in their relationship even after their kids had gone demonstrated what happens when these small choices begin to build and grow and they produce life that even after Jim had passed away, I'm sitting there marveling at the relationship they had had because this woman was still glowing from the harvest of a half of a century of life that had flowed into their relationship. It was extraordinary. 
And Paul is trying to paint this picture of flesh and spirit because the small choices we make every single day are growing into something far bigger than we can ever imagine. Even uh, the last two weeks, there was this incredible content. I was able to see it as they were working on it in this money class that we did. Jason sent me a spreadsheet that one of the guys teaching had designed, and it was a spreadsheet that illustrated this principle. He, Mark kind of said, hypothetically, you make $70,000 a year. Here's what an ideal budget looks like. And then if you invest, if you're being wise with your finances in 28 years, here's how you can have a million dollars. I mean, I'm like looking through this spreadsheet, and I'm like, this is the most amazing spreadsheet I've ever seen. But it's just leveraging compound interest, which is the same principle that works in choices. There's a compounding. And it builds, and it grows. And so here's a question I think it's worth writing down. It may not be a question you need to ask of your life right now, but it will be a question that you will ask one day. For some of you, it's the question you need to ask today. And here's the question. Is what you're doing, blank, whatever that is, worth what it's doing to you? This is what Paul's asking when he paints this flesh and spirit. Is what you are doing right now in your life, that one more glass, that one little flirtatious comment, that one more purchase on the credit card, that one more hour at work. Is what you're doing worth what it's doing to you? Is what you're doing in that relationship worth what it's doing to you? This is a powerful, clarifying question that gets at what Paul's trying to unpack here, that you will either reap in these choices life or death. And is it worth, is the fun in the short term Worth the funeral and the long? Is the fun right now worth the funeral you're going to have to walk through? Is it worth what it's doing to you? And as if somehow Paul, sensing the weight of what he's just walked us through, and the reality that all metaphors are somewhat imperfect, Paul pivots and gives a very helpful last sentence for where I want to camp as we wrap up. And he says in verse 9 this, Let us not become weary in doing good. For at a proper time, we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. It's almost like Paul can hear the people hearing it and responding to it as he writes it. It's almost as if he can hear you or me as we start to set out on this life of planting seeds in that spiritual line of what God intended for our life. But God, I've been doing this. Why am I not seeing results? God, I've been, I've been trying to be faithful. Why is my life still a mess? It's, it's almost as if we can hear our hearts cry. Because let's be real, how many times have you and I looked up to heaven and said, God, why? I'm doing everything right, but nothing is working out right. And Paul makes a point to say, look, I know I'm using this harvest metaphor, but here's the thing. 
where this thing breaks down is where in the farming world, you pull out the almanac and you know you plan in March, you get it in October. In this world, it's, in this way, it's not exactly the same. Sometimes you plant in March and you don't see it for three years. And what can happen is we step into this and we start to get discouraged by it. We look at everyone else and the way they're living their life and how they're just having fun, but we're not seeing that funeral that we knew was supposed to come while we're walking in the midst of something that's not fun, that feels like a funeral. And we can be discouraged. You know, my coworkers, they're lying. They're being dishonest. They're cheating on their taxes. They're getting ahead, and I'm just falling more and more behind. He's like, don't give up, especially like there's a subset of group of you, right, that I, I think this is even harder. Is It's those who maybe you started coming to this church. God has been working. You've been kind of reevaluating faith and beginning to kind of walk down this journey. And I've sat across the table from you. And one of the things I've heard you say is, like, I'm, I'm doing everything right now, and it's like my life has gotten worse. And I'm like, yes. That's the principle at work. You see, here's the thing. You are right now in a season of planting good seed, but you're simultaneously overlapping a season of harvesting the bad seed. All those choices prior to this moment, they're still kind of bubbling up above ground and reaping this harvest in your life. And you're going to have to walk through a season of dealing with the bad harvest from that previous chapter of your life. But I'm telling you that right now, if you keep focusing on planting the seed in the ground, one day this harvest will wilt up. And what will happen is you will walk into a new harvest, a new harvest that comes from that good seed. Don't give up because you're living in the overlap. It's not over as long as you keep moving forward. As long as you keep planting your seed, the marriage is, yes, yes, your marriage is struggling. Yes, you're in the midst of chaos because all those conversations, all those choices for the last decade are still bringing fruit in your life. But I'm just saying, if you keep on keeping on, if you keep responding graciously, if you keep stepping compassionately, empathetically, if you keep moving in that vein, eventually there will be a new harvest. And yes, you may be struggling in your finances because you've spent so many years swiping and swiping and clicking and clicking and shipping and shipping and opening up those boxes. And you've lived for so long in that place. And yeah, it feels overwhelming. And I, yes, you're eating Belveda shells and cheese for the third time this week. But I'm saying if you keep on moving on, it will move on. That there is a new harvest that comes if you keep planting the seed in this season. That's good. And Paul seems to know that. He knows some of you are coming out of some really jacked up places. And it's okay. Keep moving on. The harvest will eventually come. And for some of you who are walking in that dry spell between the seed and the harvest, don't stop. Don't quit. Don't keep moving. It is painful to live in the dry spell in between the seed and the harvest. And you can be tempted to give up. And I love his words. He's like, for at a proper time. He uses proper time, which is interesting. He actually is telling you I'm shifting out of the farming metaphor because 
we've talked about this before. If you've been at Encounter Church, I like to kind of help you understand the, the biblical passages as we're working through. Greek, the people um, had two different words for time. One was chronology. Um, that's where this word chronos, it's where we get chronology from. And it was like, you know, just the passing of days into weeks and the months and the years. And then there was this other word that was used for time, and it was like a moment of time. Paul doesn't use the chronos time. He's like, no, it's... He's like, there's going to be a moment for you one day. But to get to your moment, there has to be movement. And you need to write that down. You need to say that yourself in the middle of waking up every single day, knowing you're trying, knowing you're pushing forward, is you're like, okay, as long as I keep moving, I will one day move into my moment. Why can I be that confident? Why can I be that bold to tell myself every single day, self, yes. Don't stop moving, because if you keep on with the movement, you'll eventually have your moment. Do you hear me, self? I think so, but what did you say? I said, if you keep with the movement, one day you're going to step into your moment, self. And the reason you can be confident is why? Because at the very beginning of this discussion, what does Paul do? Paul anchors this in you. No, he anchors this in him. He says, do not be deceived. God will be not. God will not be mocked. The reason we can have confidence is because of the character of God. The reason we can stand confident is because of the character of God. And that if we keep on moving on, we'll eventually move into a harvest. And that I recognize for some of us, maybe discouragement's not the thing that you feel today. Maybe what you really feel, if you're being honest with yourself, is you feel disqualified. You've made enough bad choices, you don't deserve a good harvest. It's like, oh, Chris, if you only knew what I know. If you'd only known where I've been, then you, you would honestly have to say you're disqualified. And I love that Paul anchors this in the character of God because what birthed this whole letter in the first place was how all of future was upended because God had stepped in to the present. That the judge, right, even your, I think, honestly, even our statement, I've been there, of I'm disqualified, is rooted ultimately in the sense that we believe there has, if there's a God, he's probably a good judge and a good judge can't let things pass, right? Like if, if tomorrow downtown in Boston, this, um, the, you know, the Boston Marathon bomber was brought in and it was a retrial and the guy was like, you know what? I just, I'm going to let this pass. I'm going to let you go. None of us would be okay with that because we, we expect the good judge has good judgments, And when we say disqualified, part of that comes from the honest assessment that if there is a God, the good judgment would be I'm guilty. But what upended the present and the future forever that sparked this letter was that the good judge stepped onto planet Earth to take the good judgment that we all deserved. And that he did this in the grand sweeping overarch of this amazing good news of God had exchanged his place for you and I. 
And that while you may feel like you're disqualified, and while the honesty of the Christian story is that you and I are, the hope of the Christian story is that the one who was qualified stepped in to the place where you and I couldn't. And in doing so, when we trust in him, we get to stand in his qualifications. And that maybe for some of you, you're standing here today and you, you feel so disqualified. And I just want you to hear that the God of the heavens and earth, the God who created you, was qualified on your behalf. And if you're here and you're wanting to explore that more or dig into that more, maybe you're just here and you're kind of a little unsure about Christianity, inside the app there's an exploring faith icon. And I would encourage you, some point today, tomorrow, click on that. There's just a brief video where I kind of unpack a little bit of this more and would probably address some of the questions that you're thinking. For some of you, we'd love to connect with you at Starting Point to speak to that real raw emotion of feeling disqualified. And what we want to do today as we wrap up is we want to end with a song that I think sets the stage. Whether you feel discouraged, whether you feel disqualified, or whether you're just needing to be reminded why you should be decisive on this path of good choices. We want to camp out in those final moments by giving you a time to talk to the God who's the foundation of all of this in the first place. Because here's what I know, that this principle of the harvest puts into our hands an incredible power, not just to predict our future, but to actually move and progress towards a future filled with better decisions and fewer regrets. Let's pray. Thanks again for joining us. Did you know we've created a free app just for you? Whether you are exploring or want to grow in your faith, the app is a great place to start. If you found today's teaching helpful, we hope you'll subscribe or share it with your friends. We look forward to connecting with you on site or online at Encounter Church soon.